You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, after a few weeks away and offline in Mompos. And this is episode 407 of the Columbia Calling Podcast. That's right. We put out 50 episodes last year, had a great number of people, some repeat guests on the show, and we will hopefully put out another 50 and, of course, newscasts with Emily Hart. This intro today will be very short because we've got a long podcast for you this week, uh, the start of the year. We'll go back to the ordinary uh, size. Uh, after this one from 408 onwards but emily hart and i and she's in london and i'm here in bogota uh have taken questions from you guys so we sent out a call for questions from our listeners and we received a good number and actually we are able to go into these questions and answer them in depth some not so much in depth others in depth and it's a really great show we're able to address you know journalism ethics the elections omicron uh you know the colombian politics of course being a you know white immigrant in colombia and so on so it's a really really great show for you so we're going to go over to the uh, newscast with emily hart and then of course we'll be back with our conversation to talking about that those of you who are patreon subscribers and therefore and also on ko-fi that's ko-fi.com columbia calling thank you again on patreon we've increased the minimum for those who are new sign ups sign up from today onwards it'll be five dollars a month just for the newscast of course i mean you know it's it, it, emily works incredibly hard for this and this money goes to her it's her payment uh, so it's just five dollars a month less than a starbucks a month if you want to sign up for the newscast from emily hart we'll be putting some of this stuff out on our members only facebook page emily's in charge of that and of course we're posting here and there about everything else thank you everyone a happy new year to everyone uh, and don't go away this is a great show in which we can explore many facets of life and what's going on in colombia for 2022 thank you again don't go away I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of January 10th, 2022. Guerrilla group the ELN, the National Liberation Army, are in the spotlight this week, in the headlines for violence in two places, the killing of 27 people in Arauca on the Venezuelan border and an attack on police in the city of Cali. The group began as a leftist insurgency in the 1960s and are now an armed group with around 2,500 members split across eight fronts and present in various parts of Colombia. The deaths in Arauca, which have taken place since the beginning of the year, were initially reported as relating to armed confrontations between the ELN and a dissident FARC group. This week, however, the Attorney General reported that the victims were shot at close range in the form of hired killings or executions. 
President Ivan Duque's government has responded by sending military battalions with 625 men. Meanwhile, protests have broken out in the area, demanding an end to human rights abuses, demanding peace, and demanding state presence beyond simply the military. The border area has been the epicenter of violence for decades. A convergence of illegal armed groups, Colombian and Venezuelan government interests, and of permanent state neglect. The departmental capital of Arauca has the highest unemployment rate in the country. It is almost three times higher than the national average. Additionally, on Friday night, the ELN perpetrated an explosives attack on a vehicle carrying members of Colombia's anti-riot police force, the ESMAD. The attack injured 13 and killed none in the city of Cali, department of Valle de Cauca. Meanwhile, the prosecution of those responsible for the assassination of the president of Haiti, Jovenel Moise, continues. Mario Palacios, a former Colombian military officer, has been charged by U.S. authorities with conspiracy to commit murder or kidnapping. These are the first charges to be brought around the assassination, though Haiti has arrested dozens of people following the July murder, including 19 Colombian ex-military personnel. Three further Colombian men were killed by police at the time. According to the New York Times, Moise was killed for trying to send a list of people involved in drug trafficking to the U.S. Already this year, there have been four massacres in Colombia, according to think tank Indepaz. The latest was this weekend in Villanueva, Nariño, in which three men between the ages of 19 and 22 were killed in a park where men arrived and began shooting. Four more were injured in the incident. And coronavirus cases are rising dramatically in Colombia amid the arrival of the Omicron variant with around 30,000 new cases yesterday, up from a daily average of 8,000 this time last week. Though new lockdowns are not on the cards, business and particularly airlines have been affected due to sharp staff shortages. This week, around 40 flights per day are being cancelled, representing around 4% of the country's total operations. However, more than three-quarters of Colombians have now had one dose of vaccine and more than half are fully vaccinated. 7% have also had booster jabs. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next Monday. And we're back. This is segment three of episode 407, the first episode of 2022. And it's me and Emily today. Emily in London. Emily Hart, you know her so well, too well. And we're going to chat. We're going to chat and answer your questions later. There have been a lot of questions. Emily, how's London? How are you? Um, I'm good. London is, uh, you know, the capital of a little place we like to call Plague Island. Um, it's we're very, very much in the the grips of Omicron, but that's you know that's to be expected. And I feel like I'll I'll have some ahead of time insights when I get back to Colombia when the same thing is happening there. So all back. is well. Yeah. You'll be back by the end of the month. Yes, I will be back this month. Okay. Um, I've been back visiting family. A surprise yeah. to nobody that 
I am English, so that's where I come back for Christmas when possible and I haven't been back in a couple of years because of COVID. So it has been lovely. Exactly. And Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How was yours? It was, it was, I, well, it was great, actually. I mean, our actual celebrations were low-key and family, which was nice. I, I like it when it's manageable. I am married into an immense Colombian family. So I think on beh- for my behalf and for my wife as well, we managed to get the actual core of the family together rather than everyone because we could easily have and the grandmother who turned 96 in Montpos on the 30th of uh, December she held a lunch for 30 and 47 people turned up so there you go (laughs) wow it's sort of the opposite in England you try and have a lunch with three people and two will have COVID at the moment that is those are your stats I'm afraid (laughs) so you're you're going to leave Plague Island to come to Omicron Central. That, that is the idea, yeah. yeah. I'd say it's intentional, journalistic and out of love, but it's just another horrible COVID-related accent. But since um, we have Omicron here, you are not patient one. I certainly will not be. And I am, I am fully vaccinated, of course, um, and we'll be doing all my PCRs, et cetera, to get back. Um, but the you know the cases are rising. Those graphs are looking pretty scary. It's looking, um, looking scary, but the the I mean every every death is a, an absolute tragedy. But the fatality rate is is low. Absolutely, it is. And and this um, is something we will address in a question. Thank you, Harry. Yeah, <laughs> this yeah, is a question exactly. for later. You know, I was looking at the the beginning of 2021 as a sort of point of comparison, and that was just as the second wave was hitting. Um, and it, you know, it, it does feel a, a little groundhoggy, mm. but, but we do know more and we are all vaccinated now. Um, those of us who are lucky enough. Um, so, you know, there, there are positive things about the latest, <laughs> latest round, um, in this endless boxing match. But we do clutch at this and we do, well, we do more than clutch at it because it's been so long. But I will take two Im- Im- amazing things. First of all, this Christmas New Year season for the hotels in Montpos has been better than any other Christmas New Year season we've ever had. Wow. So that's yeah. Dating back to 2008, we have never had, and I think there have, obviously people are desperate to travel. And of course, with the peso to the pound, was it five thousand five hundred almost to the to the pound, five thousand four hundred, yeah. and to the dollar? Your your average Colombian cannot go overseas, uh, mm-hmm. and so they're getting in their cars, they're getting on the flights and going around the country. And we have been, we are still full to this day. Uh, that is, I think people are ready; they're ready to live again. Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, if they weren't going to lock down in the UK, I think I think Colombia will very definitely not be locking down. I would be very, very surprised. And I am very regularly very surprised in Colombia. That is part of what I love about living in Colombia is that there is never a shortage of things one didn't think could or would happen. This is it. it is, I am surprised. <laughs> and then, then at the same time, I'm jaded <laughs> because I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course it did. <laughs> yeah, I think, I yeah, I'm, I'm a relative newcomer. So maybe my, my jaded years right. yet. 
like a spring chicken and stuff. Uh, <laughs> there we are. So I don't know. What are we? I mean, this is, I wanted to also share is very, very well, kind of a, a, a very personal story here that someone I hadn't seen in 26 years since I'd been at high school in uh, the US, in New Jersey, in 1996, uh, visited us in Montpose. She got in touch. I had no idea who she was because she used her married name. Uh, she got in touch. It turns out that she was adopted from Colombia at two months. And so therefore, in her mid-40s, now her children are asking after her, you know, her route. So she came down to explore Colombia. And I think what is most exciting about it is, you know, I, you can talk openly with her. I said, Karen, I mean, you're indigenous. You are not... Uh, you are not Kundi Boy Asense. You are not one of these. Uh, you know, and, and we were able to sort of, uh, I mean, she was one of those adopted babies during the scandal of sort of legalized child trafficking, let's say, mm -hmm. you know, the adoption yeah. business. And she showed me her documentation, and it's done through all those businesses that I have investigated from way back in the 80s uh, that that were uh, you know, responsible for this, just signing off. Or, uh, the, the Catholic Church, in a lot of cases, not all, was involved, sell, telling uh, poor mothers either that their child had died in childbirth or that mm. the mother, you're too poor, you've got too many children, it's better to give this child up. Uh, mm. But we are managing to trace back that she's possibly, possibly of the NASA people around Putumayo, Cauca area. But that's as far as we can get. I mean, mm. amazing though, and wonderful after 26 years to have three days chatting and going through this. It was really quite touching that someone would make such an effort. Yeah. But also that, that you can reveal so much of someone's story. I, I mean, well, that's it. I've done a lot of investigating, sort of superficial investigating for people who have been adopted from Columbia. Normally they're like Wisconsin, Michigan, Iowa, and places, you know, sort of, let's say, uh, Christian families adopting uh, children from uh, tragic circumstances in Colombia. And they've asked me to look at the documentation and give them. So I've got a little bit of knowledge of how to read between the lines in some of them. Uh, and it was just being able to actually help someone who I knew, well, knew and now know again, because 26 years is a long time. <laughs> how old are you? Hang on, you're like 26. <laughs> That's not my whole life. I am uh, a dignified amount into my 30s. Okay. I won't say how many years. It's not, it's not very many. Like, looking at you, I was like, hang on a second. It's like before you were born. <laughs> not, before I was, not quite before I was born. Um, but I, yeah, I would... <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't have been very tall. Let's just say that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You could. Well, <laughs> that's all right. Uh, anyway, that was my personal story for for, for oh, this. And you know, twenty six year absence, and we actually got on really well uh, back in, <laughs> back in the day at high school in in the US, and it was so nice to reconnect and and so on. Um, yeah. But that said. So now we're into. I had to sort of explain a little bit about Colombia because she lives in. Colorado and and of course the you know news uh, agenda in Colorado isn't great on Colombia. Uh, <laughs> uh, interesting though she she you know she works as an advisor for the uh, fiscal fiscal general is that what you call them fiscal general of, of, of like the governor general of Colorado. And so her first job was Omicron, and her second job has been the Colorado fires. So there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so. Really? Then, 
management. Yeah, and, and, and top of that, trying to explain what has been going on in Colombia for the last 40 years in three days was, was something. But uh, yeah, I'm not, not a better, concise enough answer possible to that no. question. And so literally, I mean, sort of leads us in is like 2022. It's a big year. <laughs> it's a big year for Colombia. Every year is a big year, but this is maybe bigger. <laughs> yeah, I feel I was, I looked back at all of the transcripts from the news report from the entirety of the last year. And I have to say there was, there was very little in there that was brand new. Um. There's so many huge, huge threads that have been running in continuity for so, so long. And I do feel like 22 is the the year when we might have some actual new. Um, you know, the, the scale of, of the paddle of the national strike last year was, you know, genuinely impressive and extraordinary. But, you know, the paddle nacional has been something that's been around for a very long time. Um, the causes of which, you know, are inherent yeah. in society. Right, absolutely. And the, you know, the peace process ongoing, all of those HEP cases that came out ongoing, even COVID-19 was sort of old news by last year. Um, climate, particularly the abortion debate, political violence, you know, these these issues morph and change, but there was a lot of just continuity in 2021 um you know aside from i i think the, the one thing that i could say i felt genuinely sort of was new was the assassination of the haitian president and you know the the inclusion of colombians but you scratch the surface and the the use of colombian mercenaries in international conflict politics and assassination not new it's not Definitely. new yeah i'm the, the Haitian thing, maybe it's new for a, a different generation, isn't it? Because it just brought it close, especially for those of us here. It's like to wake up and then see it's, I don't know, 17 Colombian mercenaries there. and 26. 26. It, was, you know, it, it was a team. It was, it's a yeah. team. And, and mm. then it was so easy to trace as well. I mean, that was the thing. I think they were, you know, set up as well. I know, I know that it was sent over there, but they were going to be easy fall guys. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the this this word, the mastermind behind the crime, I sort of hate it. It sounds like a terrible crime novel, but you know, the the intellectual author of that crime, um, which again is a is a horrible phrase. I haven't found one I like yet. Um, is, is still unknown. Meanwhile, a Colombian has been charged with the crime. I think you're absolutely right. It's an easy, yeah. Uh, it's an easy out. And and hang on, intellectual <laughs> author, they use that here, don't they? A lot in Colombia. Yes. Los autores yeah, yeah. intelectuales de la bomba. And you're like, uh, the intellectual author. Of yeah. So in law, you have the, the material author who ah. would carry out the crime and then the intellectual author who has who essentially commissioned the crime indirectly through through another actor so it's legal um, yeah i'm afraid i i did study law um <laughs> after i studied literature so I, I have some some things that slip in and out of the way that i speak that are either incomprehensible or very dull but that distinction i do find particularly in the region that we work in very useful mm. um because lots you know lots of crimes are you know commissioned commissioned and then carried out commissioned. by 
Why mercenaries? Another way of putting it, isn't it? The commission. I know. I make it sound like it's a television series or something. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> So maybe you maybe we will maybe we'll have actual news and maybe we'll have uh, sort of let's say some different things to to report on because I think you know many years ago I I worked for a wire service and I worked out over the couple of years that I, I actually ended up regurgitating many of the same articles just changing the dates uh, uh, you know it could have been forest fires and it could have been. Um, social leaders being killed, soldiers being bombed, and so on. It was not yeah. not too much of difference came through. It would be nice to find something that we could get our teeth into as journalists that would be something, well, maybe pointing in a positive way, and uh, and also, as you say, different to some the the age old, age old uh, sort of heart of darkness type <laughs> reporting that we yeah, are doing. I mean, it's not, it's not same old and it is, you know, particularly with COVID, that was a really interesting intersection of, mm-hmm. of new and old in lots of areas. But a lot of these stories are, are continuations. I, I have some hope that an election year might bring some innovation into, into the politics. And certainly, you know, as a, as a features journalist, I do lots of, you know, finding things that are actually new, yeah. but so many of them are on quite quite a small scale um they're not you know they're not news in the sense of the news that i report for this podcast it's smaller stories quirkier stories which which are awesome but you know the peace process rumbles on there's still no international (laughs) coverage of this country that doesn't begin with in spite of the peace process five years ago you know it's so long a byword for cocaine and kidnapping and oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, i mean as long, as long as it's not the cocaine hippos if that story could die in 2022 my wish would be <laughs> i just have to say that in uh jordan salama's book every day the river changes he says that the hippos have got as far as Magangay, which is the next big town over from Mombos. So I there was there. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. <laughs> um, I didn't see them, I'll be honest. No, I think they're quite solitary in that area. <laughs> I'd have gotten the slightest glimpse, I'm sure. I would have yeah. sold out immediately and sold a piece of ice, but oh, I didn't. Vice. I can still keep this moral high ground on the hippos. <laughs> they will all buy it. All of them will buy it because it's kind of clickbait, isn't it? It's a, it's a clickbait thing. It's that curious thing. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And, you know, lots of lots of stories about Colombia are not sexy, maybe because they're not because they're not new, um, because they're updates on on old. I mean, one one does hope the abortion thing will just go through this year and we can have a good news story, at least for some. some (laughs) I would I would hazard a guess that if the front runner at the moment if uh, the front runner at the moment, Gustavo Petro, is still a while before the elections, a few months. It's long uh, enough. Yeah, uh, a few months. If he wins, he will move towards more progressive policies, trying to push them through. Although, I think that the establishment will probably not allow him to govern as he does, and it will be a, like a kind of AMLO uh, situation in Mexico, where he just sort of governs bitterly. That's if he wins. <laughs> yeah, I do... You know, Petro being the the old left, I think you're you're getting this split in Latin America in the last few years of elections. Things are moving left, but they're moving left in two ways. 
got your like your crusty left and your young left. So Petro's the crusty left. I, I would say the the idea of like an exciting oppositional left mm. to me looks more like Boric. Emptily. Right. You know, youngest president they've ever I mean to be fair, Duque is the youngest president that Colombia's ever had too, and that's not, you know, turned out for much. But Boric is the youngest, he's 35, he was a student leader. There's a kind of exciting hands-on left going rather than a sort of crusty, discursive left, um, which in AMLO's case doesn't really like women and isn't that progressive and has, you know, very authoritarian tendencies towards the press. And, you know, these two lefts are not, to me, the same left. Um, and, you, you know, Lula's, what, 76? And he's taken the space of a younger leftist candidate who was rising. I think, you know, I, I find it very difficult to get excited about uh, old, 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 old pol- political men being the face of opposition or change. You know, um, maybe that's me and a sort of boring feminist cynicism but i'm afraid that you know I, I can't look at petro's face and think that's the future he's not inspirational on that level would you say no. he's, he's an establishment figure now after so long in politics i mean the the thing with you know with colombian politics is that he would he would be the first sort of real lefty mm. in institutional po- you know there is no old left in the same way that there is in Mexico. The comparison doesn't quite track. No. Um, it would be something genuinely new. But he's still an insider. He's still, you know, an old dude. He's been at it a while. I don't know. I I, I struggle to believe that therein lies the solution myself. Oh, no, I don't believe that he's a solution <laughs> <laughs> on any level. I uh yeah. I don't. I don't see any of them. Uh, yeah, what we've got the Centro Democratico guy is Oscar Ivan Zuluaga, who is himself a graduate of yeah. masters in business from Exeter University in the UK. Uh, my alma mater. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, he doesn't get invited to alumni um, uh, uh, meetings here. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know I don't want to be too partisan, but I. Aren't we done with the Centro Democratico? <laughs> I think this is. I, I genuinely think they're in yeah serious decline. Now. All right, so you're looking at the polls. Yeah, and the I mean the approval ratings for Uribe are very very low. Twenty seven or something or nineteen or lower uh, than they have been in a very long time. You know, one could speculate for hours about why that is, but I think crucially, in, at least in terms of the electorate, that star is falling a bit um you know duke again terrible approval rating disapproval rating fell by like a point this week but his approval rating is still like astonishingly low um whereas you know petro is doing pretty well yeah. um but the rebase power is is not necessarily electoral should we say yeah don't uh, um, underestimate the man and his crocs yes never i'm <laughs> Man and so brazenly and with such confidence, <laughs> I think he's to be feared. <laughs> I think that's so too. <laughs> that happens to be where I'm at. 
But um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think I'm on a, I feel, I, I hate to say it, it's sort of like, it's, oh, I'm just going to watch this election and do some uh, political analysis, hopefully for some places here and there and some articles. But as a, as a citizen, not a Colombian, but as a resident in Colombia, I'm just a little bit wary. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, you know, as, as a, as a Brit, mm. as a fellow Brit, we have learned if, if we've learned anything as a nation in the last five years, which I do not argue that we have by any means, the polls cannot be trusted. No. They were so, so wrong on the last election. They were so wrong about Brexit. Mm. I, you know, I don't claim to have much knowledge of how, how these things work in terms of political polling, but, you know, a pinch of salt, a salt flat, all of it, just throw it on there because I, you know, and particularly... In Colombia, there's a, you know, there is four months, which is a long time. It's it's a really long time, and we know that the dead vote, uh, and some people, and so on. I don't know, and towns and people sell their votes, uh, uh, and it's an incredibly profitable business to buy votes to earn the contracts in small towns, and you know, uh, this is the, where the. Um, uh, the the other the administrative sort of elections will come in as well because that's all sort of these local elections will come in and and see how I don't know from a sort of I don't want to say grassroots but from a lower level which goes goes about sort of controlling vast swathes of the country. Absolutely, uh, yeah. and then, you know there are other tools that are not political. Uh, Sergio Fajardo's been fighting. A lawsuit, Uribe has been trying to remove the mayor of Medellin. There is, you know, there, there are things that aren't, uh, that aren't the polls that we have to be watching as well, um, as well as the political violence, which was up six months ago already in anticipation of these elections. There's, there's so, so much to be looking at uh, in 2022 it's- on the national stage uh, and then international on top of that. I, yeah, I think it's going to be a really... Very interesting year. It's definitely an interesting year. Uh, but we always say that. Never dull in Colombia. Um, definitely. Shall we address some questions? Because we got a few. And I only made the shout out a couple of days ago. Uh, yeah, we should. I have, I have the ones that I'm aware of. All right. Well, who do Because um, we've got journalism ones, which we can group together. And we've got politics ones, which probably group together and then feed into journalism. And then we've got um, ones which are a bit different. Well, we're, we're on politics. Or should we start with politics and All right. All right. Well, so how about the first, the first uh, question we received is from Eric Taboni, who's in Bogota himself or traveling around at the moment. He's a long-term immigrant to Colombia from the US. Uh, he owns a, an English language company. Here, which I believe is for sale. So, you know, if you want it, there you go. Um, but he asked, and he's a supporter of the podcast, he asked, how do you see the political landscape playing out and how will the internationally, international community respond? Uh, and I think we'll just follow that one up with, hang on, I'll turn that over, with uh, Emma Louise, Jay, who great friend to the podcast and everyone. And, and she says, what is the forecast for 2022? Or is it too risky for us to say and just report on the present? So I thought they kind of fed into one another, that one. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I think, you know, there's a sort of, um, I don't want to say paranoiac, but a sort of anxious response that says, if the election goes left, the US steps in. Because we've all seen that happen yeah. in the last 
you know, decade, century in, in this continent. Um, I don't think that's the case anymore. I, I think there is still a sort of lunatic McCarthyist anti-commie undercurrent red under the bed thing going on with the US, not saying there isn't at all. Um, but I think it's focused on Venezuela. Mm. Um, and that is very much the focus of the international interest. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to a, a friend who works for the British military who said like, yes, the war on drugs is still a thing. Yes, people are interested in Colombia, but they are mostly interested in Colombia, particularly from that institution's point of view, because it is next to Venezuela. And because there is a proxy war between, you know, new communism and the West, which is an expression I hate, but he insists on using it, mm-hmm. um, going on there. Um, so for, for me, the international response is to anything that happens in Colombia looks like it's intimately bound up with what's going on in Venezuela. I think I think you're right. I don't. I for Biden, let's say, if we're talking about the President Biden and the U.S. to meddle too much in Colombia and and the Americas, let's say, south of his south of Mexico, let's say, because uh, uh, is is a poison chalice anyway with so many issues that he has at home. Uh, I, I would just say it's just a, you don't come out of this region winning. <laughs> this is this is a this is a cemetery for international, let's say, foreign relations, isn't it? I mean, it just you come out, you come out at some point being losing at some at some level. I think Venezuela will always be key, won't it? And because I mean, oil production, we we have to say that Colombia being the U.S.'s number one, if not only real ally for so long means that it does occupy a position in sort of uh, international relations and international uh, cooperation with the US and the donations of all of these uh, military aid and so on but uh, would would they get involved I, I doubt it I, doubt I think it. intervention is, is completely out of the question as far as as far as I see it I think which way this election goes can and I, I hate predicting things, but my little sort of anxious looking into the future brain suggests that you know the further Latin America goes left, uh, the more space there is for uh, collaborations with the Chinese regime, um, and that's that's what we're already seeing um, is moving away from the US, which are perceived as interventionist and imperialist, um, and moving towards a government that is. I mean, there there aren't there aren't words for the human rights abuses of the Chinese regime within their own borders and outside of them. Um, but in terms of military aid, um, I was looking at the figures. There's a this is report by by the Global Americans, um, right. which again, like pinch of salt, but the the amount of Chinese investment tracks almost exactly down political lines. Um, the scale of it in countries that that move left or you know if you include venezuela is absolutely massive um and in the last few years the number of countries in this region that have broken off diplomatic relations with taiwan in favor of beijing is an indicator um so for me that's another big that's another big player in this region um it's guatemala that just did it the most recent one wasn't it guatemala one of the central i think i think it was i think it's one of those um I would have to look that up. Listeners, listeners, check your facts. Check your facts. Um, 
yeah, it's, I think it's a real, it's an indicator because, you know, that, that will be quietly a condition of investment and, and, you know, collaboration, let's call it. Um, fortunately. Just, you know, just get an idea out there and I'll be lambasted by some people is that, and, and let me, let me just clarify right from the start, I am not a Petrista. But should Petro get in a left-wing government, and having a left-wing government doesn't mean no investment. It's a stability thing as well, isn't it? I mean, if we take the extreme, the most extreme version of this would be Vietnam. Yeah, and they've, you know, they've built an investment. I'm not saying it's a perfect model. I'm defending myself on every outlet here, but I just want to say- a lot of preemptive defense going on. Yeah, a lot of, lot of, because I know what's happening. I know what people are, you know, sort of twisting or turning this off, but it doesn't mean you can't invest. It just means you need to work out who's in power and how best to deal with it, you know? Isn't it? Isn't that, do we not think that way? I think we, you can think that way. There's still, you know, a lot of- um, you know, Colombia's arguably not had an easy time of it. <laughs> yeah. The form of the left that has been present in Colombia, yeah. to put it mildly. Um, and I can I can see, you know, particularly given who's to the east, mm. how there might be a regional and international fear of what the left looks like mm. in this region. You know, there are there are lots of ways of being, you know, quite a quite easily able to to understand the fears that, that people are feeling. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think you're right. And one one hopes that, I'm about to say something even I don't believe, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I one hopes that the dem- democratic structures of Colombia are strong enough to withstand a leftist government in a way that that looks appealing to the outside world. I think that's very that well put. Strong enough that the business landscape is stable enough that, you know, a slight change in political ideology across the spectrum of Congress and presidency does not mean Venezuela. Hmm. I I, I think we need to, we need, yes, the democratic institutions need to be strong enough to, and also to convince Colombians that this is not going to be the case as well. I think there's both, there's two levels, isn't there? And that would lead Hmm. into our journalism questions a little bit, because uh, we are seeing, and... Uh, we are seeing, and 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 Harry Cross yes. made a nice reference to. He said, mm-hmm. "Back in the 1960s, El Tiempo was a paragon of newspaper reporting, analysis, and opinion. El Tiempo looks like Fox News to me these days. Strongly slanted against and an open in question, uh, open um, quotations, terroristas and protesters, sensational murders, crimes, car accidents, etc." And no dealing with the real issues of the day like corruption, inequality, and poverty. A free press media is central to democracies. Has the conservative political class and their wealthy backers captured the press and media? I think you've covered this in the past, but it seems certain that inequality and poverty and the impacts of COVID will be key drivers in the run-up to the elections in five months. So he kind of covers it all there, but very important points. (laughs) It, no, it is. And, you know, the free, the free media, a free media uh, in the run up to an election period is absolutely crucial. Um, the work I do on the side of being a journalist, I, I do a report on global freedom of expression every year, which is based on a big data set. 
and we measure 30 variables um, and we look at the way that free speech and democracy intersect. And what you see across so, so many countries, this is an undeniable pattern in this data over the last 100 years, media freedoms go first. Media freedoms will drop and then the democratic institutions will come under attack and the democratic score will fall as a whole. Um, this data is by an institute called VDEM. If you're a data nerd, as I have become by doing this project, please check out their stuff. It's super interesting. Um, and this is, you know, across across regions, across countries, across types of regime and government. This is the pattern. Um, and if your media, if your media goes, if the strength of your media institutions are eroded, or you know, in some countries it happens more rapidly than the word erode would be able to capture, um, your elections are in serious trouble. Um, I think for, for me, there is there is something specific and threatening that's going on and it is you know and I'll come to that in a second but I I think we have to pull pull out a little bit um and this you know this work I do I sort of need to need to take this approach to feel sane some of the time but the the internet is a huge huge technical technological advance that has changed many many things and we are still adapting we are in as a global society a phase of adaptation one of the things that it has radically changed is the profit model for media. And th those effects have been almost universally fucking terrible. And I think we can all acknowledge that. Needing to click on things, sensationalist content being more profitable and therefore making more money, this does good to no society. Mm. But I am not hopeless. I think we're in an adaptation phase and lots of media is being captured by this clickbaity, um, tabloidy and it often does lean right model where you know you want to click on is the most horrible thing it's a car wreck it's a video of a car wreck it's that horrible video that's all over the place of a big rock falling on a boat in brazil and oh, killing yeah. seven tourists i mean why is that why is that everywhere it's a snuff film um and it's, it's part of this complete explosion of the way that media made money and people's expectation that they're going to get content for free um, so I think, yes, it has been easy for the right to capture. And I agree, El Tiempo's decline is, is a tragedy. I mean, what happened to Semana, Richard, we were talking about it before we started recording. You know, it's, it's dire. It is really, really bad. And it does affect public opinion. Um, I do think, you know, those journalists, and I, you know, I appreciate that, you know, we're journalists. We've got the time and inclination to hunt these people out. But the journalists who... Exodus, if such a thing was a verb, uh, Semana, they still exist. Mm. They're around and they're doing amazing work. Yeah. Um, the yeah. media institutions are eroded, but we can follow Maria Jimena Duzan. And I think we had, a, you know, we had a, a question about who who our favourite journalists that are. Was from Jeffrey um, Ratcliffe, right? Which, and I think this feeds this feeds in quite nicely. Um, that it, it, you know, it puts the it puts the work on the citizen, on the reader to, to, to inform yourself in a slightly exhausting way where you can't just go to this great magazine you used to read. You have to hunt down these amazing journalists you love. I mean, I don't like the expression, but somewhat of a basic bitch, I would imagine, in that I love Maria Jimena Duzan, I love Daniel Coronel, I read Los Danieles, um, you know, Matarife, but you, you have to hunt, right? I mean, Richard, what are you reading? Well, uh, I, 
Uh, yes. you know, I, I've tried to read the internet, but um, mm, I like not Daniel, a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel Coronel, of course, Maria Jimena Zuzan, almost anything. In fact, I, I actually know her reason, reasonably well. It's always nice to talk to her. Um, and incredibly informed and incredibly open. But it's Simana, I, I just, I have now. I keep them on my Twitter feed to see how they are moving, and like it's like mm. a it's like a journalistic uh, or an editorial experiment. But I will not open the articles because it's designed. It's just designed to. I mean, it's like it's a almost a honey trap of journalism. It's clickbait. I, I agree. I mean, uh, but for those who watch Succession, oh, yeah. um, I think though what is happening is a creeping to the right to sensationalist tabloids, garbage of lots of our media. The bigger force is just mindless capitalism in the digital age. It's Logan Roy. You know, he's not really a fascist. <laughs> Sunlight, he, he's not really one, but it suits his business model. He'll make more money selling it. These are the channels, these are the online models that are profitable. And, and there, we will and we will evolve beyond that, I hope, at some point. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, it's fine. I just... You know, I yeah. I do love that show. Firstly, and quite right that it won a Golden Globe. Um, yes, yesterday, day before. Um, I but I do I do share a, a sense of bleakness with Harry about the Colombian press, and it is really annoying um, that we now have to hunt these fragments of great media through the landscape. Um, but I I read a lot of Colombian magazines. Mm. Um, I read Pacifista, I read Boragine, uh, Liga Contra Silencio is great when they publish. Um, and I think that that touches on this question of who our favourite journalists are. Um, I think a lot of the, the best journalism and the most important journalism are, are people we can't name. So La, La Liga publishes under only that name because that's the safest thing for them to do. Um, lots of amazing local journalism by people who you've never heard of who are the most at risk. You know, those, those are the best journalism, the best journalists uh, in in my view. I have to say, I do still read Semana because I'm very, not not for fun, I assure you, uh, I'm very keen when I put together the news briefing to read the full spectrum. It would be very easy for me to just read La Silla Vacia and El Espectador and sort of like, you know, have some news. Um but I read El Tiempo and I read Semana because as a, as a journalist and I think as a, as a citizen, and I know this is annoying and no one likes me saying it, but you've just got to read everything. That is your responsibility now. We're living through this yeah. shitty, weird adolescence of the internet. It's angry. It's right wing. It hates everything. And it's, it's your job to read as widely as you can, because that's the only way you're going to know what's going on. I, um, I, However, Emma sent in a really in interesting question that I think. Um, How do journalists protect their mental health? Well, covering. Yeah, which I think feeds into this. Um, while I say read everything, also occasionally read nothing. You know? <laughs> do, you, do you, you know what I'm saying? I, th I think that the like, constant plugged inness, or like you say, trying to read the internet will make you mad. I. Um... Yeah, I, I kind of switched off for the last couple of weeks. Um, you have to. So to be fair, I've most journalists in Colombia from what I've seen of those papers. So. <laughs> I, don't, um, 
Oh, TV news in Colombia makes me very sad. He won't watch sort of the news, in, and it is because the last time, I mean, it was over years ago now, and it was always car crashes. And then I would get calls like from my um, my father-in-law who would say, "Oh, you know, the, the, have you seen this news about a, a, a poor a baby that drowned in a pool in Barranquilla?" And I'd be like, "No, I haven't seen it. So, so just be careful, okay?" Mm, I mean but I'm not a baby in a pool also that there's a sense that like all apocalypses and all disasters are our disasters. My, my mum, who I love very much just regularly wanders into a room with Twitter open announces the death of a famous person and then leaves again. It's just like, it is this like sense that we, we all need to know. We all need to be plugged in. And, you know, some of the topics that, that Emma covers are incredibly heavy and, and to be 24 seven as you well could be, with the existence of the cesspit that is Twitter, uh, you, you could spend your whole life connected to, to violent images and violent facts and, and it, you know, protecting your mental health, I think is just, is not covering conflict sometimes. And I don't mean give it up as a job. I just mean protect your free time. Yeah. And really finding ways to totally disconnect, you know, my friend Malcolm Linton, who's a conflict uh, photographer, mm. he stepped back from conflict for, uh, photography after a while because he felt not only that uh, too much uh, was going on and, and, and he was too immersed in these things and needed to get out and trained up as a nurse to help people. Right. Right now, actually, he's he's uh, he's gone back to nursing. <laughs> right now, uh, a fantastic profession. I think the the thing you know, what I would bring from my experience in in humanitarian situations, because I worked in the in the Calais refugee camp um, when it had you know eleven thousand people living in it during the winter. It was a very very bleak situation. Um, and lots of us felt totally unable to disconnect from this like horrible situation. Um, and while that, while that sounds like a, we, we're such good people thing, I think you have to always have in mind that you are not irreplaceable. If the work that you do affects you in a, in a very negative way and you feel unable, unable to sustain your well-being while doing it, you have to either share that work or take a step back, train someone up and put them in so that you can manage it in a way that's sustainable. And I think lots of humanitarian workers make this mistake as well, um, is not feeling able to, to take a week off. Um, but I believe very few people in the whole of history have been so unique that they can't take a week off work and have someone step in for them or have someone help them out. I, I simply don't believe in human uniqueness to that degree um and it is it's a slight sort of ego release to say like it is just me doing this work but i could have someone help me or but someone else could do it for a month or maybe someone else can take this article the we we actually we i covered this a little bit with uh an italian humanitarian worker sabrina prioli who'd spent a long time in colombia and then was in i want to say south sudan mm when they overran the, the rebels, took over their UN compound, soldiers, and she has set up a, a foundation for, uh, what 
you call it? Uh, you, you know, for relief, for for uh, aid for humanitarian workers themselves. Mm. Yeah, and journalists and researchers who work on conflict, you know, secondary trauma is a genuine psychological phenomenon. Um, and again, you know, constantly bashing on about media policy, but if you're a freelancer and not a staff member, you have absolutely no support from anybody. And sometimes you get a bit, you know, a beautiful mind. You're not even sure what exists and what's real anymore, let alone someone checking in on your mental health. I mean, you can feel very unsupported in that. And I think academia, you know, has a very similar issue in lots of ways. So let's get into Martin Kopp's question, because it's kind of, thought of, I think what he says will actually feed back to your issue on the, um, let's say, the profit model. Because he says, you know, he asks, why today 90% of journalism is only political manipulation and it's lost its basics like ethics, objectivity and quality. Most is only copy and paste without checking if it is real or like most of the time, fake news. Now, I have, I want to get into that quite quickly and just say, I, I can't take the term fake news. I, I can say if you want it as propaganda, it's one thing. And the other thing is, it's a very, I hate, again, Trumpist way of just, uh, you know, uh, condemning universally in one fell swoop, uh, you know, a whole segment of the media because it's an uncomplimentary subject or something that paints someone, something, some episode in a negative light that you don't like. It doesn't make it fake news. So, so I just, I want to get rid of that phrase. That's my, my bugbear for 2022. I, I would love to see that phrase go because I, it is, I mean, it is something that, that Trump popularized. Um, and for me, I think, I think there are two really interesting things that come out of this question, which for me are the, the two things that lie at the heart of this problem. And one is that aforementioned model, uh, I mean, I would rather call it viral online disinformation. But then, you know, I work with NGOs and academics and that kind of language doesn't turn them off, whereas normal people, it, it does. Um, but that's, that's where the real problem is, is where these these clickbait profit models and also, you know, uh, strategic political factions spread intentionally certain types of information to suit certain types of agenda. And when I say information, I mean lies in this context. Um, things that you know to be untrue that you spread. Um, that is the dangerous element of fake news. And, you know, there are there have been people in Iran dying of drinking bleach because they were told by someone online or in a WhatsApp group uh, that that was a cure for COVID. You know, there are genuine, you know, and in a pandemic life or death style dangers that come with viral online disinformation with no accountability. However, on the other side of this coin is exactly what you're talking about. It's this authoritarian, anyone that disagrees with me is lying thing. Um, that relates to a deep political polarization that is unable to see outside of its own perspective. Anything that disagrees with it is a lie, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of what truth and lies are, as opposed to opinions and other opinions. You know, there's a, 
a, a redefinition of what truth and lies are coming out of these authoritarian leaders. And we've had during the pandemic, minimum 17 new pieces of legislation by governments with criminal penalties for those who spread fake news. And these laws are already in countries across this region and in others being used to jail journalists. Um, so these are our two dangers, is that fake news is is both a real thing and a very useful political entity for manipulation. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think that the answer is laws criminalizing people who spread fake news. A lot of people are either not aware that it's not true what they're spreading, um, making a real good faith attempt at telling the truth and just not quite managing to, you know, these things do happen too. And you have a right, you do have a right to be wrong. That's allowed. Um, obviously the intentional spreading of misinformation about political candidates is a serious problem. And, and we might well see what that, what effects that has in Colombia this year. I mean, Brazilian elections also this year, that's a country where misinformation, intentional misinformation by WhatsApp groups, i.e. where you can't track the information that's going out, has been a massive problem. Uh, big investigations by the Supreme Court into Bolsonaro's political wing's very intentional creation of that content. Um, we, we will see. I mean, I spoke to Columbia Czech uh, last month for a feature I was writing, who are Columbia's fact-checking group. So they try and track viral disinformation, um, and they they have an entire new team and coalition set up ready for the elections. They are they are braced um, because they know what's coming, um, and they were born at the time of the referendum on the peace deal, um, because this was certainly an issue then, and the need was observed. <laughs> and this, you know, they're they're a fantastic group. Check them out online um, if you're interested, because they will try and monitor what is the most viral lie of that week um, and fact check it and correct it. Um, yeah, you know, the problem, as I'm sure Martin has identified also, is that you can do a fact check and you correct the check. Is your fact check going to get as many clicks as the original lie? <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's an, inc it's an incredibly complex issue that I've given a very long answer to the question too without really being able to synthesize I'm afraid pernicious impact partisanship <laughs> <laughs> you need a pop filter for a sentence like that pernicious well, I think, I mean, we've got, to, we've got a few more questions and then we'll bring this to a close. I think the next one that we need to address is from Angie Devon in Florida. Yes. And it, she says, can you reflect on what it's like to be sharing the Colombian experience as a white man? What complications does this present? Have you encountered pushback from Colombians or others about your perspectives or experiences? Uh, the answer to the second part of that is yes. <laughs> and to the first part, certainly, I've, as a white man, uh, on the whole, we are treated with a with deference 
uh, in Colombia, which I would sometimes prefer not to be treated uh, I, I like that. I would prefer to be sort of just uh, treated as if I was someone else. But of course, I'm just not someone else. I'm a white man here. So you're right. Um, I have tried over the almost 16 years to have been... I'm not. I'm no longer uh, completely impartial. Of course, I'm not, because the articles I choose to write just to show a, a subjectivity and an interest in in issues that I feel are important, the ones I wish to sell as well. Uh, so, therefore, you know, I can't come from this uh, objective objectively at all. Uh, in terms of business and other things, I have had pushback. Uh, I have had quite a lot of issues, uh, almost campaigns in our, in our contra, uh, legal, illegal, uh, clandestine, whatever you want. Um, I tend in the small town, Montpos, where I, where I, you know, run my businesses and so on, I tend not to be political at all and just, uh, just stay uh, out of it. They are, so there is a party, there are a group of people, there is a group of people trying to get me to run for mayor. Uh, which I have declined and declined and declined. Uh, I can't anyway, because I'm not a Colombian citizen. So let's start with that. <laughs> it's a good excuse to avoid the question, I think. It's flattering. But get involved in local politics would also be becoming a cog in the political corruption and political... The, what was the, the uh, words that Harry used? The hang on, he got it in here. Uh, just a second. The conservative political class. It would be the political class and their wealthy backers who control all of the contracts in these regions, where thirty percent of every contract goes to them. So that's why over thirty percent of every construction contract never gets finished. Oh yeah, I, I can't say that's a statistic that surprises me, to be honest. Uh, I yeah. don't know if I've answered it. I think I might have skirted round it a bit. Do you have anything to say as a white woman? Uh, yeah, I think as a... It's, my, my response to this is, is best told through through a sort of violent internal reaction I had to... I was, I was talking to a journalist friend who was frustrated with something a Colombian had said to her. Um, and she said, it's so annoying because I, I know more about Colombia than that person does. And I just had this like violent internal response, like you could read every newspaper in Colombia for a hundred years and you do not know more about Colombia than any Colombian person who's been alive for three days. You know, unless you are Colombian, you cannot lay claim to the Colombian experience. You are an outsider. And I think as a person writing on Colombia and sometimes forming international opinion on Colombia, you have to be acutely self-aware um, that you are an outsider and that's your role and you do not have superior knowledge and the best you can ever do is listen um, and not write a whole article, leave a space for a quote and go to a Colombian to get a quote to fill part three. You go to your sources and you listen to them and you allow them to shape your perspective. Um, and, th and that's how you are able to report in, in what I think is sort of with with self-awareness and you know it, it's also you know there are very few non-colombian journalists in colombia 
it's a horrible double negative who were who were non-white um you know what i mean that i i don't know any english latino or american latino journalists working in medellin um so this this whiteness that we all carry i think is is a good reminder you know take take a look in the mirror like i'm not fooling anyone no one no one thinks i'm colombian and that's in some ways good because i'm not going to forget either um, and I love the place and I feel deeply connected to it and I'm fascinated to it. But you won't ever catch me saying that I know more than a Colombian child about the country. You, you just don't. Well, that's a good answer there. I'm going to jump. We're going to jump topics. Because we do. Mm. Sean St. Marie has sent in a question about visas. Ah. Colombia proposing to make it harder to get a visa. I currently have a migrant rentista visa, but they are proposing getting rid of that type of a visa and making it just a visitor visa without the possibility of permanent residency after five years. They are also proposing getting rid of the investor visa. Is Colombia getting sick of foreigners or is it some other political issue? I am. Um, yeah, I fear we would speculate, <laughs> as you say. Yes, I, I've had all kinds of problems with visas, the large majority of which are entirely a result of my own complete incompetence. Um, so I, I don't feel qualified to even comment one, one word on that, if I'm honest, Richard. I think I'll hand it over to you. I don't think Colombia's getting sick of foreigners, and I don't think it's a, really a, a, a great political issue. I just think uh, every it's kind of cyclical. Every every few years, or let's say, <laughs> uh, these these things do change a bit, and uh, obviously, a, a government will look for the form in which it can make you know more income. Uh, so if it means changing some visas and creating different loopholes and making making their websites even more complicated, then then they'll do so. Um, I, I, I couldn't possibly give you a straight answer to that, Sean, and I apologise for it. Uh, Harry has this second question, and it's on it's on COVID, and I think we can quickly too. I've noticed a huge spikes in COVID infections in the past week. You reported 2,000 daily cases just a week or, or two back. Now I see it's 38,000 yesterday. Any updates on the Omicron spread? Impacts and government responses would be welcomed. Um, I yes, I mean, <laughs> the update is that it is spreading. I mean, that would be my major update on the spread. <laughs> yes. My wife, an epidemiologist, looked into this for me, so I'm going to defer to her. Unless you yes. have something to add. Um, not that. No, go ahead. Uh, they've decreased the. You no longer have to do a 14-day isolation in Colombia. It's a seven-day one, so you've got that, and you don't have to do the test if you've got the symptoms. You've got it. That's what we found out today. <laughs> so just if you if you have got the symptoms, just treat it as if you've got. Omicron. If you are double vaccinated and in contact with a carrier, you don't have to isolate or test. Um, and Omicron, this is actually from a government page, is not considered as severe by the government. And I suppose when they say that, it's severe in terms of fatalities. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a truly chaotic vibe uh, I don't know how to put it that list of um, not least because asking people to assume they have it without testing 
in Colombia where people's employers are not sympathetic and people do not have paid sick leave, what do you, like people are not going to isolate because they've sneezed and miss work. You know, there's, there's nothing realistic about that guidance as far as I can see. Um, but, you know, we've had testing shortages even here in the UK in the, in the month that I've been back. Um, and they love testing here. Like... I'm staying with my parents because I'm visiting my family and they don't bring me a cup of tea in the morning. They bring me a lateral flow test on a tray. And I, I only wish that was a joke. That's a, that's a real, that's a real life thing that I'm experiencing. It's, you know, still thoughtful in its way, but you know, the testing, the testing, it's a real culture here. And I was, you know, surprised and impressed by it, but I, it, it begs the question, are the enormous numbers of cases being reported in the UK in some way related to the enormous amount of testing going on in the UK. Um, and, you know, certainly with Omicron, it looks a lot like a cold, according to the new NHS updates on it. So it's hard to know. It's hard to know. But I, I would say I don't see lockdowns. I think, you know, no, gov- no expert I've read, no government spokesperson has suggested that any amount of case numbers is going to lead to another lockdown. And a final question. It's from Matt Smith, who's from the other perspective, from uh, uh, Martin Cobb. And he says, why is Medellin a free-range, free-range lunatic asylum for gringos? And uh, uh, lots of our listeners are in Medellin, so therefore... I'm going to say it's not a free-range lunatic asylum for gringos. And Emily lives in Medellin, so she's better placed. I do. I'm, I'm an inmate, I suppose, in that case. Um, or a patient. Maybe a patient is there. Yes, I, I mean, sounds rather nice being a free-range lunatic, to be quite honest. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of very colourful characters in Medellin from the international community. Um, some of them behave in ways one approves of, others, others don't. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's a place you can go and not be terribly accountable for your behaviour if you have money or earning dollars or pounds. Um, I think it liberates people from the social mores of the places they come from and the financial restrictions they may have had in those places. Um, I could do, you know, a very easy long rant about gross white men in Medellin, but I won't because, I, you know, I think there's lots of really great expats and immigrants to Medellin who contribute in, you know, meaningful ways, both economically and socially. Um, but, you know, we all, we all know or are aware of the unpleasant ones. And it's, it's you know, I think it's a tiny number, but they're so visible. I think is, is uh, mm. the conversation I had with a former an interviewee from last year who said, and it, you know he didn't want to be quoted on this. He says, "Why is there a gentleman with a younger lady, you know, a much, much sitting in the Sheraton talking about he can recommend lawyers? I mean, why would that guy, a U.S. guy down here, need a lawyer if he wasn't doing something?" Uh, you know, he was he was sickened by it. He said because he knew what was going on. Yeah, I mean, there, there are you know, one comes across things that make you uncomfortable, and there's you know, there's active criminality, and you know, sex tourism, child sex tourism, drugs tourism, 
it's all it's all there it is um and that i don't think is a secret to anyone who spent 10 minutes in in medellin certainly not in poblado um on the other hand there's men who try and explain bitcoin to me both of these types of gringo not a fave that's all i'm saying not not on the same scale of ethical horribleness um but one can take exception where one looks for it um and, you know, certainly there's there's an American um, Americanization happening. And if one is not a fan of that, I, I can see, you know, if you've been in Medellin for a long time, maybe you're seeing changes that you don't necessarily like culturally. You know, I've only been there for a few years. So, you know, I wouldn't like I wouldn't like to comment or pretend I'm some kind of old timer, to be honest. Um, but I would also say a certain type of lunacy is natural and maybe nice you know there's lots of very interesting non-conformist folks knocking around too um yeah. i'd say we're all lunatics here in bogota yes it's interesting that medellin's been pointed out yeah, I, know. I, mean, I mean to live in bogota so much going for it, but we're all lunatics hmm. <laughs> i mean most of the best people i know are so i i you know <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we've done a huge, <laughs> huge uh, podcast for this week, but I, I think that's good for the for the opening podcast episode for this year. Can we mm. remind all of you? Please do. Yes. No, and as you've just heard. I read Samana for you guys. I subject myself to all kinds of media to make sure that I'm getting a neutral range of all of the week's most important stories. Um, and we now have a subscribers only Facebook group where some extra content goes in. Um, and you'll have me on WhatsApp. So if you have question like questions like these, I'll be doing Q and A's once a month at least. So, um, please do sign up. Um, but if you don't, or if you don't feel like it, happy new year anyway. And we'll be here on the podcast every week. You can find us here. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Listen, thank you, Emily, for your time. It's dark. No, dark. thank you for having me. Oh, it's so dark. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm going to need another cup of tea. <laughs> We'll sign off for today. This was the first episode of 2022, an exciting year here in Colombia. Of course it is. Uh, thank you to Emily Hart for sharing more time, more time and effort with us this week. She, she clearly read up for the questions and offered very insightful responses to which I am, I have been, well, I pale. <laughs> That is my job, but thank you. <laughs> um, and so we will sign off this week and we'll be back next week. I have an author lined up and then the week after that, I've got a forensic investigator. So there you go. Wow. So we're going for it. And hopefully Emily will have interviews as well in the pipeline. So we're, we're looking at Yes, those are indeed in the pipeline. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. And happy new year. Thank you all of you. Happy New Year, Emily. And let's sign off for today and be safe, everyone. I mean, <laughs> despite, you know, the flu-like symptoms of Omicron, it's still a virus out there. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you again and bye-bye.
Life's better with an auto policy from American Family Insurance. No matter what dreams you're driving towards. That's because our expert agents will make you feel totally protected with the right auto coverage at the right price. You'll also save up to 23% when you bundle auto with home. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.